This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, when Jesus told us to love everybody, did he really mean everybody? We talk about this important and central question of faith with our guest Jacqueline Bussey, author of the recent book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. She's professor of religion and director of the Forum on Faith and Life at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. She's the author of the book Outlaw Christian, Finding Authentic Faith by Breaking the Rules. She's a sought-after speaker on issues of faith and life and interfaith peacebuilding. Today, we're discussing her recent book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. Even before it arrived in print, the book generated some controversy, starting with one publishing house who then refused to print what Bussey wrote. The book is now being published by Fortress Press. Well, Jacqueline Bussey, welcome to Things Not Seen. So this book, Love Without Limits, has a very interesting history. So from the time that it was an idea to its publication, and that history is very deeply tied into the book itself and what the book is about. So if we could, I'd like to use that as a jumping off point for the bigger questions of the conversation. First of all, how did the idea for this book arise, the need that it was speaking to, and then what kind of went wrong in the process as you began to put those ideas into practice moving towards publication? Yeah, well, thank you. So the idea for the book arose during the election year. As I began to feel the deep ways in which we were becoming more polarized within our local and national communities. And I really felt that poignantly. And I had to decide, you know, what I was going to write that second book about. And I thought, you know, I would really like to write about love. I'd like to celebrate the love in my own life. But I would also like to speak to these really polarizing times. So that was the plan, right? And I proposed the book, and my publisher at the time really loved it and thought, oh, this will be very relevant. And I wrote the book exactly as planned and according to the proposal, and the publisher even helped me to come up with the title. 
Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. And then once I submitted the manuscript, David, they they wanted to speak with me. They said, well, we love the book. We're very excited about it. But there's just one thing we have to talk to you about. And I got onto the phone with my editor, and he said, it's the gays and the Muslims. Those are his exact words. And he said, some of the stories that you're telling are just not in line with the values of the majority of our readers. And he also said that they might not be able to sell the book in its current form to the power customers. These were exact words. So that's where the problems really began. And what do you imagine that this publisher's representative meant by saying not in line with the values? Like, Can you flesh that out for us concretely? Well, I think that I can, because then when they sent me the manuscripts, because I didn't really understand what they were seeing. Honestly, I was very distraught. And then they said, well, we will take a, we will do a heuristic rewrite, was the word that they used. So they rewrote two entire chapters of the book. What, the things that were cut can give you a sense of, of what they were worried would make their some of their readers uncomfortable. So, for example, they cut in its entirety a story of my friends who had adopted a special needs baby who was born in prison, and the baby had alcohol fetal syndrome, and the baby you know, had, had some severe disabilities early in life, and it was a gay couple who had adopted the baby, and they cut that story in its entirety. And so when you were going through this process with the publisher and the publisher was saying, well, we think that it would work better in the market if it would be shaped in this way. Our customers would like it. And you use the phrase power customers as well. I imagine those would be major distribution buyers as well. In that process, were you thinking they really have the best interests of this book at, at heart? Or were you thinking instead that something was being gutted or taken away that was essential to the book as you saw it? I really want to kind of understand kind of how you saw this process. I really felt that they were ripping out two vertebrae from the backbone of the book. I felt that the book could not stand up without those stories. I didn't see that it could. I mean, the thing that my neighbors had done with adopting that special needs baby, to me, was love without limits, David. It was quintessential to the message of the book, and it was quintessential to me as an understanding of how adoption is the way that Christians are drawn into the body of Christ. You know, that's, the Scripture is very intentional about saying that adoption is how Christians are to understand themselves. We're not Jewish folks, you know. Jewish folks are either the, the sort of family, right, and then we are grafted in, according to the Apostle Paul. So, yeah, I, these things were essential to me, and I was unable to cut them out of my own integrity. Fascinating. So, and so when you say that you were unable to cut them out of your own integrity, how did you communicate that back to the publisher? Did you say this is a matter of principle? Did you say this is a matter of just the logic of the book? Or did you frame it and say, listen, I think that we really have a disagreement about what's fundamental to the gospel here? Yes, I had a good working relationship with them, and so I spoke to them as I'm speaking to you. I I said that my integrity as a teacher was at stake. I drew the analogy for them. For example, I said, if a student comes into my classroom with, you know, certain facts and certain points of view, and they leave 15 weeks later from my classroom with exactly the same facts that they already had when they came in, all the same stories, all the same thoughts, my class was a failure. That's the way I see teaching. Teaching, I have to present a new perspective, differing perspectives. You don't have to agree with those perspectives ever, but you have to walk out knowing that they exist, and so there's these differing opinions. 
and different life experiences. And I said that to them, exactly. I said, my integrity as a teacher is at stake. You know, if I'm teaching on Islam, which the book actually does do, right, it, it provides sort of Islamic Literacy 101, if I'm doing that, most of my students who walk into a classroom, and this is true of most Americans as well, don't really know a lot of things about Islam. You know, that's part of my job. So it was just too much was on the line for me to make the changes that they wanted because they also wanted to make several cuts where I was teaching simple facts about Islam, including the fact that many, many Muslims love Jesus and would even use that language to speak of Jesus as a beloved prophet. That's not how Christians love Jesus, is not as a beloved prophet, right? Christians love Jesus as a son of God. That's just a statement of fact. So that was very difficult for me. And so you and your publisher had this disagreement about the book. That meant that they didn't want to publish the book as you wanted to write it, and so you were simply free to then take that book somewhere else, right? Absolutely not. No, that's where the rubber really hits the road. So I had been paid to write the book. I was paid a very large advance, an annual salary in my book, and I was took a leave from my regular work at Concordia College. And so I lived largely off the money that I was paid to write that book. And when I refused to make the changes that they requested, then they said, well, we own the rights to the book. We paid Jacqueline to write it. And they said to me and my agent, they said, she owes us back the entire advance every penny, which I no longer had, because, of course, I lived off of the money. So how is it that I'm able to be holding this book in my hands? How did it move from that stalemate point to a point where it's actually able to, to now be in print? Actually, it's a really beautiful story. This story goes from really, really painful to really, really powerful. So I lost the rights to the book. I lost the book itself. I lost a year of my life, which I spent almost every single day writing. And I fell into a certain amount of despair because I felt that my book was kind of suffering from the same polarization that our own society was suffering from. And I felt like, wow, these stories can't even be stated. So I lost so much. And then that made me fall into a state of despair for a couple of months. I'm not going to lie. And I didn't know what to do, and I felt ashamed, you know, I felt humiliated. And then I had a friend one day, she said to me, you know, Jacqueline, I'm afraid that they just want you to shut up and disappear. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, I can't say if that's true or not, but hopefully that's not true. But one thing that I did realize was I had shut up and disappeared, and that's not okay. So I walked home the very day that she said that, and she recommended, she's like, you should write about what happened to you. So I walked home, and I took a picture of myself. I took a selfie. I have duct tape across my mouth. I wrote censored on the duct tape. I put it across my mouth, and I took a really close-up selfie of myself. And I look horrible. You know, I'm so tired. I'm filled with despair. And I took that picture, and then I just wrote. You know, I wrote a very short piece, not naming my publishing house, not interested in demonizing them in any way. I just wrote a short piece about what had happened and sharing my story so I wouldn't have to keep retelling it. And I posted that short blog on Facebook with the picture. And in 24 hours, it went completely viral. And what happened was people started tagging the CEOs of other presses and someone tagged the CEO of Fortress Press, and they said, this is a book that you're going to want. But, you know, and this was a person I didn't even know who'd seen this on the reshare of a reshare. And Fortress Press just was so amazing. They stepped in, and in 24 hours, 
they made an offer to buy this book. And even that has a cool story behind it that's kind of, to me, feels like a God thing. I'm not going to lie. So the senior acquisitions editor for Fortress Press, on the day I did that post, was sitting at a writer's conference 900 miles from his house, and he was seated, coincidentally, right next to my agent. And he saw this on his phone, right? And he turned to my agent, not knowing that was my agent, and he said, do you know who Jacqueline Bussey's agent is? And my agent was like, what? It's me. And that's why it happened so quickly, because then he was able to just, from his phone, send the book to Fortress Press. And they made an offer to help me buy back the rights. And then uh, my husband and I pitched in, and they pitched in a really, really generous advance, and then we were able to pay the book back. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. We're discussing her recent book, Love Without Limits. We'll be back in a moment. I'm David Dalt, host of Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith, heard each week here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I want to invite you to a very special event. On Monday, September 24th at 6 p.m., we'll be doing a live taping of Things Not Seen at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore on Woodlawn Avenue near the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. I'll be talking with John Fee about his new book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. The book looks at the politics and history behind the unprecedented election of 2016, when close to 80% of evangelicals helped propel Donald Trump to the White House. The event is free and open to the public. You can RSVP at seminarycoop.com. That's seminarycoop.com. So join us Monday, September 24th at 6 p.m. for a live taping of Things Not Seen at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Hyde Park. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. I'll look forward to seeing you there. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. We're discussing her book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. So in your book, Love Without Limits, you take time to think about the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and there's a whole bunch that is going on in that chapter. And as these events are happening, Jesus is taking time to discuss what's unfolding with the religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees. For those who have not read Matthew 14 in a while, what should we be paying attention to in that chapter? Well, I think, David, what's so interesting to me is the way that Jesus defines family in such a radical way. Jesus is far more interested in, you know, he has that famous line about saying, like, oh, we have to hate our mothers and our fathers and, you know, and everything in order to really, truly follow me. That's a very shocking kind of statement for Jesus to say. And I really want to unpack that and think about what Jesus what he's really trying to say to us as believers. And to me, there, Jesus is trying to say, everyone in the world is your family. That's going to be hard. That's going to be hard to live out. We have to draw the circles of our family bigger. We have to widen the wingspan of our love. 
that's what I feel that he's really saying throughout that entire chapter. That's very radical. You know, it's easy to love our own, and it's harder to, to widen that wingspan. And so as we're thinking about widening the wingspan of our love, you begin to bring in some very concrete examples within your book, Love Without Limits. And in particular, you're talking about loving across some lines that we've already begun to sort of uh, touch on, but let's really flesh them out. You, you say at one point in the book, a lot of Christians have no problem loving Jesus. It's other people that we can't stand. And so help me to understand some of the ways in which you feel that Jesus is calling us to love the people that we cannot stand. It's really interesting to me if you look at Jesus' own life. And I should say, David, too, that that quote that I say there, it applies to myself. I sometimes have such a hard time loving other people, and I don't have a problem loving Jesus, right? And so I'm, I'm calling myself out on that, and I just want to make sure that that's clear. As far as Jesus goes, the type of folks that Jesus spent all of his time with were all the people that in his society he was taught, and I'm sure, you know, most uh, everyone around him was taught that these are the lowest of the low. Don't hang out with them. These are the scum of the earth, right? You don't hang out with Samaritans. They have a false faith. Get away from them. And what does Jesus do? He interacts with the Samaritan woman. He respects the Samaritan woman. He listens. He seems to even change his mind, you know, and to show love to her. And so I really just want us to return to the Scriptures and rediscover how radical and contested and scandalous and subversive that Jesus' love really is. And if you live like that, I'm making the case in the book that it's going to be hard. And then it's kind of crazy, because when you look at what actually happened to my book, it kind of proves the point I was making. (laughs) Well, in the process of proving the point that you were making, some of the things that came out that were sticking points for the first publisher was telling the stories of people who are same-sex attracted, a gay couple that you mentioned who did an adoption, and also telling the stories of some people that you know who are of the Muslim faith. And so let's take each of those in turn. So when we're talking about people with same-sex attracted experiences, and the, the terminology shifts a lot, so I want to be careful here because I don't want to misname anybody, but I also want to for our listeners to understand what we're talking about. So in that process of speaking about the love that you see between these people, tell me why you find these examples of love to be particularly informative for Christians. Okay. Well, in the example of my friends who are involved in a same-sex attracted relationship that they've had for years, they're Christians. The fact of adopting a special needs baby really, really stood out to my husband and I, because quite frankly, I was raised in a very, you know, evangelical household, and, and the thought of same-sex attraction to me was, it was an affront, you know, um, to God. And my views have changed over time, and I remember watching my neighbors, you know, with the son that they adopted, and my husband and I, and they were so exhausted, you know, it's so difficult to take care of, of a baby who's born addicted to crack like that. And my husband and I were like, oh my gosh, they are amazing Christians, because they are. And it made me really think a lot about when people think of same-sex attracted couples and whatever they're thinking of, are they thinking of these real people, you know, who, who are my neighbors? And I thought, this is a really important story to tell, because here I am, I'm a straight woman. I haven't adopted a special needs child. To me, that is such a that radical love across... It has nothing to do with biology, and that to me is what Jesus does teach in Matthew 14, that the love we are called to have as Christians has nothing to do with biology. Jesus is teaching us that love lines, not bloodlines, matter the most. 
Okay, so some of my listeners are going to want to push back against what you just said, because you just said they are amazing Christians, and they're going to say, but they cannot actually be Christians if they violate what is clearly said in the Word of God. And so how would you respond to a listener who is fervently wanting to have that kind of identity attached to a Christian, a person who identifies with explicitly what the Word of God says about the way that we're supposed to order our relationships? Exactly. I think the first thing I want to say is that I respect them in their point of view, and also I love them without limits. So I'm not going to fall down into that rabbit hole of we disagree, and so we have to hate each other. I feel that we're being tricked into hating each other these days, and I'm not going to do it, right? So I would want to hear their point of view and to hear them out. So I just want to say that with all the love that I can. That being said, I have done a lot of biblical interpretation, you know, wrestling with the Bible myself, and one of the things I've seen is there is a lot in the Bible that we're not actually following anymore. For example, you know, wearing clothes that have two different materials in them, the Bible condemns that. There's passages in the New Testament that condemn braids and the wearing of gold, and, you know, these are all things that we're breaking. And so... I just want to say that even if you would agree that that is exactly what the text is saying, and I think it's a little more complicated than that in my view, there's ways in which we're all selective literalists. And I talk about this in the book. I think that we are picking and choosing a lot of things, and I'm just honest about that. There's things in the Bible I'm not following. I'm wearing, you know, clothes of mixed fabrics. I eat pork. You know, these are things that are condemned. I don't believe that we should stone children to death for dishonoring their parents. That's also in the Bible. So there's a lot of things, and I feel like, you know, science has given us some understanding of same-sex attraction and understanding that among many species, including human beings, and that has really grown to change my view. But most importantly, I just want us to keep talking to one another about this, which is why I tell stories in my book. To me, LGBTQ, it's not an issue, it's people, and I think we need to talk to one another. Well, when you talk about this couple who adopted the special needs child, you're talking about a very radical act of hospitality. And there are other points around this issue of same-sex attraction where you're talking about, I guess, what we might call interventions of hospitality. So you tell a story that in one of your classes, you asked your students to write their religious biography on a card and only use six words. And you had one student who wrote something that really stuck with you. And I'd, I'd like you to tell us about what that card said and how the conversation that followed that helped to shape your understanding of the kind of hospitality that we're talking about. So the activity that I did was called a six-word memoir. And it's a very powerful spiritual activity for any community to do. And I asked my students to do this, and one of my students wrote on the card, I mean, we gasped as a class, she wrote, gay religion major, scared of church. And we were, you know, and I personally was devastated by that. And she she was, you know, growing up Lutheran her whole life, always gone to church, and she was scared, you know, to tell them who she really was. And she, more than that, she was scared to say that she felt called to become a pastor, which now she's doing. She just entered seminary this week. So... I just really love her, and having gotten to know her and hear her story and hearing how she feels called by God has been really important to me. So when people around you have taken that kind of risk, when they have brought their own honesty into the conversation with the possibility of being rejected, 
did that shape and guide the way that you thought about the responsibility that you had in telling their stories in this book? Absolutely. It is an absolute honor that that particular student gave me full permission to tell her story and to use her name in the book, along with everyone else who gave me their permission. That is the greatest gift you can give someone else, I think, is to trust them with your story. And I feel that I have to be a steward of that, David. And so part of what happened for me in this process, when my original publisher said to me, you have to cut these stories, these stories that my friends had given me permission to tell, I thought, I can't. It's like deleting them. It's like deleting their love from my life. Yeah, and I can't do that. These are, these are people, and I love them, and they've entrusted me, and I must be a steward of the stories that they've given me. You know, and I took that very seriously. So I asked this question one way slightly earlier in the conversation. I'm now going to ask it in a slightly different way, because you mentioned this student who wrote on the card, gay religion major, scared of church, who now is entering seminary in the hopes of becoming a pastor. Some of my listeners are going to push back against that. And I, I was thinking about this in light of the, the language of the liturgy that's used by the Eastern Orthodox, particularly. At one point in their liturgy, they will say, holy things are for the holy. So how do you respond for those who are coming from a place of genuine concern? They want to keep their practices, their liturgy, their altar, their church holy, and I'm sort of scare-quoting holy, but the notion that somehow allowing someone in, like your student, might in some way be a defilement of that holiness. Well, I would have to say, first of all, that I understand where they're coming from to a certain degree because I used to be that person. Okay, so having that said... Holiness in the scripture, the Hebrew word for that, it basically means to be set apart for a special purpose. As I have listened to the testimony of LGBTQ brothers and sisters, it's not, I feel, this is my opinion, I feel it is not for me to say that they are not set apart by God for a special purpose. That's much bigger than I am called to do. And so, as I look at these sorts of issues, I feel there is a holiness there. And I also feel that when I am confronted with difficulties in biblical interpretation in the contemporary day, I want to use agape, radical agape, Jesus' radical agape, to try to figure out that's sort of my overarching principle. Like, is what's happening here in line with radical agape? I'm just honest about that. And I'm sure I would have many critics for that. This is Things Not Seen. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. We're discussing her recent book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. You talk about your grandmother in this new book, Love Without Limits. And in particular, there's an aspect of your relationship to your grandmother that has to do with your name that I think is very important for my listeners to understand about what you're talking about when we're talking about love without limits. Yes, yes. Oh, it's one of those things that stayed with me my whole life, and I, I thought, I have to write about this and try to figure this out. So my grandmother, she was a wonderful woman. I don't want to speak ill of her at all. But there was a strange thing about her, which was that she never called me by my right name. So I prefer to go by Jacqueline. People like to shorten my name to Jackie, but I, I don't care for that. But my grandmother, it's not even just that she didn't call me Jacqueline, you know, or she didn't call me Jackie either. She called me by my middle name, which I have never gone by. My middle name is Eileen. I've never gone by that in my life. No one in my family ever called me that. That was not a nickname. And my grandmother, my whole life of knowing her, now she did pass away when I was 18, but she called me Eileen. And I could never figure out what the heck was going on. But I use it in the book because as I was writing, you know, writing for me, David, is prayer. So when I was writing about this, it, it became obvious to me that this was something that, was, that I needed to learn something from. And what I learned was it made me feel like I didn't really know my grandma and that she didn't really know me, that names are that important. But what fascinates me about this is that some need in your grandmother erupted in a need to misname you, to call you by a name that was comfortable for her, but not comfortable to you. And this leads to an observation that you make in the book. You say, real love calls people by their right names. And you also note that sometimes the names that we've been calling someone for a long time, and maybe we're very used to, sometimes for the sake of hospitality, sometimes for the sake of expressing a real connection and relationship to that person, those names have to change. And I'd like to just explore that a little bit with you. And first of all, when you say that real love calls people by their right names, what do you mean by that? I mean that when we are going to address someone or name them, that we listen to what they want to be called. And for a lot of people, that is, that is their holy name. That is the name that they feel that, you know, God has given them. And I want us to actually listen to that rather than give them names ourselves. And so some fine examples of that cross over into what some might call political correctness. I don't think that's political correctness. I think it's actually loving people to call them by what they want to be called. So, for example, I have a dear friend. He happens to use a wheelchair. He doesn't want to be called handicapped, you know, which is an older term that folks used to use. He wants to be called a wheelchair user. So just examples of things like that is what I mean. And so some listeners will push back against that and say, well, you're just a relativist. You're wanting to be wishy-washy. We are called to serve the God of truth, and we need to call things as they are. And I'm scare quoting the as they are, but I, I want to see kind of how you would engage that kind of pushback because it seems like there is a mindset that says, no, there's a way that things need to be named, and that's tied into a whole notion of how things are right or how things are wrong. Right, yes, I hear what you're saying. Well, and I can understand that to a certain level. And then the first thing I would say is just that, in a way, we all have the same name, right, which is beloved child of God. So if we start there, so there's a sense in which as long as we're honoring, in my mind, that everyone's a beloved child of God, then we can move from that place and then listen. 
I mean, we're, we're obviously, there's just going to be a lot of disagreement on what things should be called. And I just use that story of how painful it was for me. And anyone who's ever been called a name knows how awful it is to be called by the wrong name. You're not going to get to know that person. You're not going to cross over some barrier and be able to cooperate with them. So I just really feel that when I look to the example of Scripture, God changes people's names all the time as they grow, as they're doing new things. And so names are a holy thing, and they seem to change even in the Bible. They don't just stay the same. Well, and what I love about this is there's two things in this. One is that you're recognizing that naming something is a power relationship. I think of Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay. You know, when when he decided to be called Muhammad Ali, the reaction of the boxing world, the reaction of the sports reporting world, the reaction of the newspapers was very hostile to the notion that he should have ownership over his own identity. And that was very much in my mind when I was reading this. So naming is a power relationship in many ways. But also what I love about what you just said is much more deep than that. We're talking about not an object that we own. We're talking about a human being, a beloved child of God that we want to be in relationship with. And a fundamental act of hospitality is allowing them to say, and I would prefer to be called this. Amen. Is all I can say. That's exactly You just said it better than I could. <laughs> Jesus really is the primary example of this. Jesus walks around asking everyone, who do you say that I am? Because he knows, right, not that he doesn't know who he is, but because he knows that how a person labels another person who is not themselves, right, <laughs> says an infinite amount about that person. That's why he's interested in it, right? And people misname Jesus all the time. But then when people get it right, you know, of course Jesus is delighted. And often that's the people who are in a really, really good, strong relationship with Jesus. But even the disciples are misnaming it all the time. We have to really listen to that story and say, what is that teaching us about our relationships with one another? We misname one another, and we also misname God. Well, and in your book, Love Without Limits, you note that this doesn't just end with the notion of misnaming, but also with telling the wrong story about people that we're in relationship with. And I'm thinking of a person that you write about in your book, your friend Khadija, I believe it is. And you talk about Khadija is Muslim, and Khadija was telling you her experience of 9-11. And one of the phrases that really stuck out to me was, Khadija says to you, those planes were not the only things hijacked on 9-11. My faith was hijacked as well. And I, I want to ask you about this with regard to the notion of Khadija's story or the story of Muslims and the way that Christians have refused to hear that story as they wish it to be heard. You know, it was just one of those things that Khadija said that stuck with me forever. I, you know, it's, it's never left my mind. And I think it's been, and I've heard it echoed too from from several of my other Muslim friends who've come and spoken here at Concordia College and I've talked to my students, you know, about their experience of being a Muslim in America post-9-11. That's actually a very common sentiment that comes to find out, you know, among Muslim communities. You know, if a Christian does something, David, like if I do something, people don't think that what I did reflects on all Christians, you know, in all the, you know, billions of Christians in the world. But there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. And if some Muslims do really bad things, and they do, right, as, as do Christians, it, suddenly that reflects on 1.6 billion people who live on all continents and have completely different cultures and all that, you know, but they're all Muslim and that supposedly then they're all one thing. 
you know, this is the phenomenon of the single story. I talk about this in the book, and it's a very, very damaging thing to tell a single story about any community, whether that community is evangelicals, whether that community is Republicans or Democrats, or I don't care who it is. It's a very, very damaging thing, and we have to stop. And I think Jesus in particular calls us to stop, because Jesus does not ascribe to the single story about anyone. Well, and you use this phrase in your book, Love Without Limits, this notion of the single story, and you write at one point, I'm sick and tired of love losing to the single story. So help my listeners understand what you mean when you're saying this phrase, the single story. Thank you. Yes. Well, that phrase does not originate with me. It originates with one of my favorite authors, Chimamanda Adichie. And she has a TED Talk that I recommend everyone, as soon as they're done listening to this podcast, go and watch. And it's an amazing TED Talk, and it's called The Danger of a Single Story. And basically, she just talks about the ways in which power, coming back to the power issue, that power gets to decide who has a single story uh, told about them and will often tell a single story. So the best way to do this is by an example. This is not her example. It would be mine. If I say the word Muslim to a lot of folks in America today, the first thing they think of is terrorists or ISIS. That is a single story. If I say to someone, Trump supporter, and everyone says racist, that is a single story, right? And so this cuts across all sorts of things. I would be willing to bet that most people have had an experience of a single story being told about them. They know how painful it is, and yet somehow we turn them to other folks and we fall into that trap of telling a single story about them. And we just have to stop. And I feel that love is, is losing. In Jesus' day, Samaritans, they were the enemy. They were people who practiced a false faith. And yet Jesus tells this parable about where a Samaritan is amazing. A Samaritan is the person that we should all go copy, <laughs> you know, the good Samaritan, right? And, and to me, this, we have to rediscover the scandal that Jesus was rejecting the single story in his life about people of other faiths specifically. And I just want to use that, you know, the so-called Good Samaritan parable to look at how we should treat our brothers and sisters of different faiths today. And I apply that directly to Islam. I have some friends and some listeners as well that I know that would say, yes, we should listen to the stories of Muslims and we should befriend Muslims. But their intention in the listening and the befriending is they want to find that magic moment when they're able to deliver their story, the story of Jesus Christ, and convert that Muslim. So I'm wondering how you see that kind of approach to relationship, because clearly in the book, you've staked the publication of the book on telling the stories of the relationships that you have with your Muslim friends in one sense. And so what is the goal of your friendship with these Muslims if it's not to convert them? And I'm assuming it's not. <laughs> oh, it's definitely not. Yeah, my goal is holy friendship. And in fact, I tell stories in the book of how my faith has been deepened by getting to know my Muslim brothers and sisters. I wouldn't be so bold as to know this for sure, but they might say the same thing about me. You hear this a lot, like with interfaith friendships and the ways that we can learn from one another. Friendship doesn't have a goal. Like, people, people to me are never a means to an end. People are a beloved child of God. And what I've found out through my interfaith friendships is that I have a lot to learn, that other people's faith can deepen my own, and that uh, they can teach me things, you know? Like, I, I have a lot to learn. And so it's, been, it's been an exercise for me in, in humility to get to know my Muslim brothers and sisters. I just want to love them and be loved by them. So that's basically it. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. We're discussing her recent book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Jacqueline Bussey. We're discussing her recent book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. As I was reading through your book, Outlaw Christian, I noted that you made an observation about how we read the story of the disciple named Thomas. And you note that we call him Doubting Thomas when he asked to see the wounds of Jesus when Jesus appeared to the disciples during the resurrection. But then you point something out that I think I had missed when I had read that passage the number of times that I've read it. And that is the other disciples who were there also failed to recognize Jesus. But we single Thomas out. And I wonder... Do you think that the same thing happens with the Bible's instruction about love, particularly that, you know, we're called to love folks that we don't like. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love those with whom we have profound religious disagreements in the case of the Samaritan, all of those. So why is it that we read those passages and we can't see what they're saying? <laughs> that, is, that is a brilliant interpretation. I hadn't necessarily thought of it that way. Yeah, I think it just shows us that we have... We have some serious shortcomings. <laughs> I guess it comes down to, oftentimes maybe we know what Jesus is really asking, but we could make a thousand excuses to not do it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's the best I can come up with. I, I think that we, we're experts in self-justification for why we don't have to really, really be that radical. We think, okay, it seems clear that Jesus says love everybody, right? I don't think anyone would, would say Jesus is not saying that. But then we like kind of like take out this Sharpie, this red Sharpie, and we draw a little asterisk next to that. And we're like, but surely you don't mean them, right? And maybe that's our uncle who was so mean to us when we were little. Or, you know, or maybe that's Muslims, or maybe that's Republicans, or maybe that's Democrats. Whoever it is, we're doing it. Like, you know, we, we just take out the pen and we draw the asterisk. And again, I'm pleading with us in the book, please, we, we have to stop. We all go down together, or we all, 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 all boats rise. Well, with that, then I, I have to ask you then about a phrase that often gets used in these moments of differentiation around love, and that's the phrase that, that says that we should love the sinner but hate the sin. And so when we encounter that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, what is your response when you hear someone saying that's what they're trying to do? Yeah, I would say that the human heart has a really hard time doing what you just said. <laughs> I wish that we were that sophisticated, right? But what we tend to do is hate people for their sins. It's almost too difficult for, for most of us 
to, to look at something and be able to condemn something completely, it, it takes a very sophisticated person, I think, to be able to say, okay, I completely love you, but this thing that you're doing, whoa. <laughs> you know, what we tend to do is the world is filled with people who are actually oppressed and thrust to the margins and hurt and made to feel less than by other people. If that weren't true, I would maybe say that that popular saying could work. But the truth of the matter is, every day there's people who take their own life. Every day there's people who wish themselves gone. And that's because we are making them feel that way. Just I feel like as a Christian I'm called to love bigger and better. And if, and if that means having something more sophisticated than that cliche saying, then that's what it's going to be. When you say that, when you talk about the people who are thrust to the margins, the people who are pushed to the sides, and you say, as a Christian, it's my job to make sure that they're not forgotten, you're speaking as a Christian who has a lot of privilege and a lot of power in your particular location. But I'm also aware that in the book you say that, you know, to really get in touch with this, we need to understand, and the phrase that you used I, I really stuck with me, no one understands the rejected as well as the rejected. And so, in one sense, what we're talking about, if I'm not mistaken, is empathy, like knowing that the pain that we're encountering in somebody else in some way ties into the pain that I have felt in my life. And if I can be in touch with my own pain, I can begin to have empathy for that other person's pain, that other person's rejection. And so, what you're asking is both just a good amount of self-reflection, knowing that I feel pain, and sometimes that's hard for people to to admit, but then making the leap and saying, and I, because I don't want to feel pain, I want somebody else to not feel pain, so I need to go to the margins, I need to go and seek that person out. When we talk about this action, moving from our place of comfort, because I'm a comfortable Christian too, when we move from this place of comfort to the place where we're standing with those who are rejected, what does that look like for a white straight-presenting, cis-presenting Christian in the 21st century who happens to live in America? Yeah, that is such an important question. Yes. Well, (laughs) I would start by saying that in in my own case, because I am a person of power and privilege, it means that I have to listen all the time, right? I have to be open to correction. I have to listen to everyone who is telling me I feel less than, and here's why, because I'm not white, because I'm not is presenting because I'm not, you know, and all of that. Like, I have to listen to them. Also, then, if I'm entrusted with that story and I've been given permission to do so, I need to pass that along. So, you know, if I'm teaching class, David, one of the things I'll always do is, like, I will step back and literally bring in speakers. Like, bring in a Muslim speaker, bring in someone who's trans, bring in someone, so that that person can share their story in the first person, and I am not just a teacher. And I think the other answer I would say to your question of what does it look like in this day and age, like to be that person of privilege and who's white, et cetera, I think it means that when your publisher says you need to delete these stories of people who've been made to feel less than, these people who are often silenced, these people who are often rejected, that I have to say, I have to take a public stand and say I'm completely unwilling to do that. I have to be willing to lose money. I have to be willing to lose the book. I have to be willing to lose you know, my dignity, I have to be willing to do that. That's, that's what it looks like to me is that, <laughs> is, is that you're going you're gonna to lose something, you know, and um, that's, that's important. That's what love is willing to risk. I would say love, love is about action. You know, love in the Bible as it's presented to us, it is the curriculum. 
it is not some extracurricular activity like flag football. It is the thing we're being told that we have to do. And that, to me, is why love is a commandment. It's not an option. And commandments are things that we need to be doing. If that means, in this day and age, to me, that maybe means taking out somebody you know of an opposing political party and and having coffee with them and sitting down with them and and trying to maintain that friendship or build a friendship or at least try to understand one another. I always say understanding and agreement, they're not the same thing. And love demands only understanding, not agreement. And we've lost sight of that. Well, Jacqueline Bussey, reading both of your books, Outlaw Christian and Love Without Limits, I was moved by your honesty. I was informed and instructed by the ways that you took the stories that you told and you applied them theologically to real-world problems. I'm so thankful that you wrote these books. I hope that you continue to write. I also am so thankful that you took the time to speak to us today. So wonderful to be on the show. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Jacqueline Bussey. She's professor of religion and director of the Forum on Faith and Life at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. She's the author of the book Outlaw Christian, Finding Authentic Faith by Breaking the Rules. She's a sought-after speaker on issues of faith and life and interfaith peace building. Today, we've been discussing her recent book, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.